Well, good morning and welcome again to In Town Church. We're so glad to have you in worship with us. If you were not at our Ash Wednesday service, we began a uh, new sermon series entitled The Prophets of Repentance. And we'll do that throughout the Lenten season and then pick up again in our study of the Gospel of Luke uh, following Easter. So we started last Wednesday with Jesus as a prophet of repentance. And this morning we're looking at uh, the prophet Amos. So you can follow along. This is our Old Testament reading. Hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat, skimping on the measure, boosting the price and cheating with dishonest scales, buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings With the wheat. The Lord has sworn by himself, the pride of Jacob, I will never forget anything they have done. Will not the land tremble for this, and all who live in it mourn? The whole land will rise like the Nile, it will be stirred up and then sink like the river of Egypt. In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious festivals into mourning and all your singing into weeping. I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I will make that time like mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. For I will give the command and I will shake the people of Israel among all the nations as grain is shaken in a sieve and not a pebble will reach the ground. All the sinners among my people will die by the sword. All those who say disaster will not overtake or meet us. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, for many of us, this is our regular spot on Sunday morning. We know the drill, and maybe worship has become routine or even mundane. And we need to be shocked. We need to see you afresh. Father, maybe we're here seeking answers. Life hasn't gone the way we'd like or expected, and we need your comfort. We need your counsel. We need your help, even in the midst of this great passage of repentance and judgment. Maybe we don't know why we're here this morning. It seemed like a good idea at the time. Father, you've given us a bold and challenging accusation But you're not a God out to get us, but to give us the life that we're truly seeking. Help us to see that the answer that you're looking for is not a perfect life, but a broken spirit, a contrite heart, reaching out for your mercy. Father, would you give it again as we continue this worship service? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So back in 1991, a guy named Arnold Abbott started a charity for the homeless in Florida. And they gave out blankets and shoes and soap, and they fed over a thousand meals a week and also helped homeless people find gainful employment. And he called the charity Love Thy Neighbor. A few years later, he was contacted by a woman in Michigan who also had a ministry. Her name was Catherine Sims, and hers was called Love Your Neighbor. Now, on her ministry, she sold t-shirts and bracelets and trinkets, 
and had a website. And she had trademarked the name, Love Your Neighbor. And to her, Arnold's ministry, Love Thy Neighbor, just seemed a little bit too close to Love Your Neighbor. What if they clicked on his website wanting to give to her and they gave to him instead? And so she sent her, him a cease and desist letter. I have this name trademarked, so you need to stop. She asked politely at first, and then when he thought it was no big deal, we we're you know, thousands of miles away, it's different anyway, she sued him. said, I'm going to take you to court to get the use of that name. She sent him a cease and desist letter, and also she asked in the lawsuit for him to turn over any and all profits that he had made through his homeless ministry. So he has to hire an attorney with a retainer of $5,000, which according to his cost in the mid-90s was over 13,000 meals for the homeless. Her attorney says Catherine Sims is a very religious person, following the precepts of Jesus Christ and trying to do God's work. But she's following a very strong scruple, and and it's that she had the name first. Ira Glass, who discovered this story for his American, This American Life program, asked her attorney in the interview, but if the idea of the principle is that you treat your neighbor as you would be treated, the way that she would want to be treated is that he would give up the name. Why doesn't she just give up the name? The attorney, well, because she has far too much to lose. And I don't think any doctrine of biblical law requires people to give up something of value to avoid conflict. Our passage this morning details people who are very religious, very scrupulous, you could say, and yet have no problem at all leaning on other people for what they think is rightfully theirs. Into this situation, God sends Amos, the prophet, and he accuses the people of this sin. We're going to look this morning at what that accusation is, And what relevance this ancient accusation, this ancient text has to us, both in the church and as just general Portlanders this morning. And then we're going to look at the way that God would have us answer that accusation. So first of all, the accusation. Now we didn't read this part, but he shows Amos a vision, gives Amos a vision and says, what do you see, Amos? And Amos says, well, it's a basket of summer fruit. Summer fruit is something to be celebrated. That's when you started singing and dancing because the harvest time was over and you had a basket full of ripe fruit. But in this situation, God is using it to say that it's not the fruit that are ripe, it's the people of Israel who are ripe for judgment. He says, the end has come upon my people. Now, neither the formerly formally religious among us nor the post-religious among us deal very well with things like this, with themes of judgment. For we say, God can't be like that. The first say, he can't be like that. He judges people all right, but it's all the other people, not me. And the post-religious among us say, well, he doesn't judge people at all. But this passage says that, in fact, he does. He does judge, but it's not the same, it's not the kind of judgment that either of those two camps expect. God's judgment is indeed very severe, but it's on those who try to get leverage over God by their religiosity, by their obedience, by their outward conformity with God's commands. It's those people 
It's Israel. It's God's people on whom this judgment is given. There's three accusations or three parts of this accusation. And the first one is that these people, Israel, my people, are actually counterfeits. When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat? Well, what's the accusation here? It's that they're formally religious. They're counterfeits in their worship. They're very attentive to their religious duties, but their inner compass, their heart, what motivates them is very different than God himself and his grace. You see, what happened in these feasts, in the new moon feasts, in the Sabbath, is that business ceased. The marketplace was closed, and so the rich were restless. They couldn't wait to get back to real life, to what really motivated them. That is their business interest. And so their inner compass was pointed away from what was really meant by the Sabbath. What really had their heart, what they daydreamed about in worship was the marketplace and how much, they, how much money they could make once the feast end, ended. I'm here at church, but inside my heart, inside my real God is not the God of the Bible. It's not his grace, but it's human achievement. It's power. It's wealth. It's status. It's my reputation. And if I'm in a place like church, if I'm in a Sabbath rest, I can't work on that. And so I'm restless. I'm daydreaming. Because what my real God is, what I'm really bent on serving, I can't do here. I got going there and I couldn't turn my page. He says, I swear by the pride of Jacob, I will not forget this. I will not forget this type of sin in my people. And when you take an oath, you swear by something that is fixed, something unchangeable. And ancient people would swear by a mountain or swear by stars because it was something that they could identify, something that did not change, at least in their understanding. God would swear by whom? Himself. Because he's unchanging. But he's already done that twice in Amos. He swears by his holiness. He swears by himself that I will judge you if you do not repent. He's already done that. So he chooses something else. Other than God, what is predictable? Other than God, what is unchanging? What is fixed? And he says it's human pride. It's the intractable heart of vanity within Israel. You see, God's being sarcastic here. He's being ironic. Did you know he did that in the Bible? He's swearing by the pride of Jacob because that's fixed. That's unchanging, apparently. You will not change. I've done everything I can to get you to repent. I've loved on you. I've rescued you. I've protected you from your enemies. I've given you food. And you will not turn. You will not rest from your self-promotion. And so by the pride of Jacob, I will not forget this sin among my people. Even their religious duties were done out of self-interest. He says, you bow to me, you show up regularly, you come to the feast and the Sabbath, but your heart is not with me. What is ruling your heart is your own vanity, and there's nothing more certain than that. And so I swear by that. Pride was at the center of these people's lives. And they're so turned in on themselves that they would even use religious observance to get leverage over God and other people. They're religious counterfeits. That's part one of the accusation. Part two is that they're corrupt. 
They're corrupt people. Spiritually, they're not doing very well. But economically, financially, they were flourishing in Israel at this time. And there was this growing disparity between the rich and the poor. Growing disparity between the working class and the wealthy class. He says, you are buying, buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. What is he saying here is that the rich held such sway in that community in Israel that they were able to buy people for the price of basic necessities. That people had to go into debt in order to buy sandals, to buy shoes. Their basic necessities were so expensive that they went into debt and into actually debtor's prison and slavery to the rich class in Israel. And this, according to God, is injustice. This is injustice in the middle of the people who are called to serve him. The kingdom of Israel is supposed to be the one place where the poor are taken care of and not abandoned, where the alien flees for safety, where the oppressed find refuge. But Amos says, God says to Amos, it's become the very opposite. And it's not simply a lack of charity, a lack of attentiveness. It's an injustice because these are my people called to serve the poor and they serve instead themselves. It's a refusal to be the type of people I've called you to be. It's a refusal to act towards others like I've acted towards you, God says. Now, why did you move to Portland. Maybe it's to enjoy the, the cultural amenities that we have here, and they're much more and much more concentrated here than where you left. That's partly true for me. Maybe to be among the people who share your values and outlook. Why did you start coming to in-town, particularly to enjoy the richness of our historical liturgy, to be among people that share your values and your outlook and your theological orientation? Or maybe be the kind of person who attends a missional, urban church. What if the reason that God has you in either of those places, or both of them, is not the reasons that initially drew you? It's not that these motives are entirely wrong. Many of us really love Portland. We love what it has to offer. We love in town. We love some of those things I listed. But what God is saying through Amos is that Oftentimes, we, though these motives are not entirely wrong, we show up in places to feather our own nest, to project a certain image. I'm the sort of person who lives in Portland. I'm the sort of person who goes to this type of church because we do things right. I don't know what God has for in-town friends, but I know what I never want us to be, and that's the hip church. That's the cool church. That's the church that people are buzzing about. You just have to visit in town because they've got it all going on. Because they're the cool thing in town. That is not why we're here. What God is saying through Amos is that you've misunderstood me and my blessing. I didn't call you to be my people to be comfortable. So that you could be around people like you. So that you could promote yourself. But so that the poor and disenfranchised would have a refuge. But you've corrupted my commands. You've corrupted your own business interests. You lean on the poor rather than serve them. You exploit them rather than create a refuge. Then thirdly, the third part of the accusation is that they're callous. 
They're callous people with callous hearts. There's two words in verse 4. He says that you trample on the poor and the needy. Now, one is what we would normally translate as economically poor. But the other one is not a direct synonym of that. It means wretch. It means oppressed. It's what we would call in our culture an underdog. You have trampled on the financially and economically poor and the underdogs in your community. God is telling Amos, that's why I've called you. Not only do you neglect the poor and the underdogs, but you oppress them and make them serve you. I've called you to do exactly the opposite. You know, cities are places where the upwardly mobile congregate. It's where cultural elites flock to. But it's also where underdogs live. It's where the down and out, it's where where the weird and the outcasts come because there are others like them here. They leave other places where they feel like a loner and a loser and they come here because there's others that share their orientation and share their disadvantage and they have a community. If you're a Christian who lives and works or worships in the city, you are called to these types of people. And we need to check ourselves for our motives in living here or moving here, even coming to in town. What is it that really motivates you? Is it the needy, the underdog, and the poor, or is it your own self-promotion? Is it your own identity, your own sense of self-worth? If we're here solely for self-advantage and self-satisfaction and promotion, then we're in the very same situation that Israel was in. God is saying, Israel, in town, I've advantaged you so that you can advantage other people. And if you claim to be my follower and yet... Ignore the needs around you. Ignore the underdogs in your midst. And you have a very good reason to ask, do I really believe? Do I really get the grace of God? They were counterfeits, they were corrupt, and they were callous. And what binds all of these three things together, beside the fact that they all start with C, is that they share the same root sin. It's an over-concern with self. It's the sin behind the sin. It's the sin behind their behavioral sin. What do counterfeits want? They want God's approval, yet with very little resistance. The least demanding way that they can find God's approval, they're going to do that. Religion is their game. Counterfeits worship in order to get leverage over God, to get leverage over other people, and actually keep the real God at bay. I'm good, I worship regularly, I keep my routines, and so therefore, God, you stay out of my way. Stay out of my life. I want just a touch of you. I want you to come to my rescue when I'm hurting and when I'm needy, but for all intents and purposes, I'm okay. What do the corrupt want? Well, they want personal profit more than they want to be honest. What do the callous want? They want to protect their own position. Caring for the underdog might mean giving up. Something It might be, mean caring for someone else more than themselves. This is the sin behind the sin. What binds these all together is an assertion of the self. It's saying, this life is my party. This is my birthday party and don't ruin it. This is my special day. The real problem with sin is not the behavior it produces, but the orientation of the heart 
that it reflects. The most dangerous thing is not the behavior, but the heart says, the heart that says, I am king of the world. Anyone, James Cameron, Oscars, 1998, it's Oscar Sunday, if you didn't know. The dangerous thing is not the behavior, but the heart that says, I'm king of the world. Don't step on my toes. Now, that's the accusation. What is the answer? What is God looking for in his people, Israel, in in town? Instead of asserting privilege, as they do in verse 10, certainly disaster will not overtake us. We're God's people. I've done my duty. Disaster can't come into my life. It can't overtake us. Instead of asserting privilege, you measure yourself by the plumb line and by the poor. Now, what is the plumb line? What is that all about? Well, it's part of a vision that we didn't read. We didn't read the basket of summer fruit. We didn't read about the plumb line. These are visions that God is giving Amos. And he says in chapter 7, This is what he showed me. The Lord was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord asked me, What do you see, Amos? A plumb line, I replied. Then the Lord said, Look, I am setting a plumb line among my people Israel, and I will spare them no longer. The one thing that stayed consistent in all types of construction for thousands of years to this day is gravity. If you hang a line with a weight on it, if you give it enough time to stop swinging back and forth, it will be directly straight. That's the plumb line. And so you can use it to tell if a wall is straight. And if you hold a plumb line next to a crooked wall, it doesn't matter what the building engineer, the construction person says, no matter how good his background and training is, if it doesn't match up with the plumb line, it's crooked. No matter how hard you worked on the wall, the plumb line will tell you if it's good or not, if it will hold weight. And God uses this image to say, I'm the plumb line. I'm like gravity. I am unchanging. You must measure yourself against me, not your own machinations, not your own religious devotion. You measure yourself by the plumb line. You measure yourself by me. The right answer, the answer of faith is to say, God, by your standards, by the plumb line, by what is truly holy, I stand condemned. If I'm measured against you, I can never justify, justify myself by my outward compliance. You see, we talked earlier about the formerly religious and the, the post-religious crowd in Portland that both have a problem with God's judgment. Well, they both have a, a problem with self Justification. The formerly religious want to justify themselves by their religious behavior. The post-religious religious religion of Portland wants to justify itself by its own behavior. This instinct of self-righteousness is the same in either of those two camps. It goes right through everyone in this room. The right answer to God's accusation is that I cannot justify myself by my outward compliance. Once I've seen God, once I've seen how holy he is, once I've seen the plumb line, I have no hope of conforming to his will and earning his approval. I can never attain to your standards. I need mercy is what the plumb line calls us to do. Or the remedy of the prophets. I need Messiah. I need a redeemer. I can't 
earn God's approval no matter how good I am, no matter how well I behave. There's still this plumb line. No matter how straight I say my life is, that plumb line, God's word, his own holiness is the true measure. And insofar as you understand God's holiness, his incredible purity, you will never look at yourself and say, I'm okay. During Lent, we have to consistently come back to see what is the plumb line. What is God really like? We're confronted with our humanity against God's divinity, our sin against his holiness and purity. The plumb line calls us not to self-promotion, not to privilege, but to repentance. We measure ourselves first of all. The first part of the answer is you measure yourself by the plumb line. And then you measure yourself by the poor, by your concern for the poor. Our concern for the poor and underdog is never an inclination that merits God's approval, but it's very much evidence of it. It's consistent throughout Scripture. If you really want to know who understands grace rather than a counterfeit religiosity, if you really want to know who's righteous, if you really want to know who gets God, look at how they deal with their resources and look at how they think of the poor and the underdog. It's all throughout Scripture. And that's what Amos is calling the people of Israel to remember. You've missed it. You've made this life about your own behavior. What God wants is your heart. He wants you to care for those who are needy and poor because you once were a slave in Egypt and I set you free. If you want to know if their counterfeits are real, look at how they use their resources and how they treat the poor or the other. In other words, what does it mean to say that you love God? You are saying that you love the mercy which freely reaches out to the helpless, the needy, the underdog. You before the plumb line. When you stand before the plumb line, you're the needy person. You're the person who is in poverty. You are the underdog. You're broken. You're needy. And God reaches out to you and rescues you. But if you're unable to grant this very same thing to others, then what business do you have presuming upon God's grace and mercy towards you? The only way you really know that you get it is how you treat other people. In effect, God is saying it's clear that you do not love my mercy because you don't practice it. You see, what Israel has done, what's happening in this passage is not that God is saying, well, I'm out to get you and you're not behaving well enough. No, he's saying you have abandoned me. You're no longer my people. You've given up your claim upon me. And so therefore there's judgment for all of those who claim to be my people and yet don't follow me in a foundational heart way. There is judgment. So is there any hope? Is there any reason to rejoice and to leave here with some semblance of a smile this morning? It's a hard passage. But let's jump back from 7 up to chapter 9. He says, in that day, remember as we read Amos 8, in that day represented judgment. In that day I will put an end to my people. But here in chapter 9, in that day means something different. I will restore David's fallen shelter. David's fallen dynasty, his kingship will finally be restored. A king is coming 
to sit on David's throne in that day now takes a hopeful turn. There's some reason after reading chapter 8 that you read chapter 9 and you say, oh, I get it. There's reason to despair in chapter 8 and there's reason for hope in chapter 9. Because though God's judgment is severe, his mercy is even greater. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins. He's talking about Israel, the very same people that he was condemning in chapter 8. And I will rebuild it as it used to be. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the one who plows and the planter by the one treading grapes. What he's saying here is that there will be so much to harvest that the planter and the reaper all work at the same time. They're plowing, they're reaping all at the same time. There's so much to harvest. It will be the end of all economic systems, whether it's capitalism or socialism, because there'll be an abundance for everyone. No distinction between the rich and the poor, because the king that comes won't just put an end to social problems, but will restore all things. He will rebuild the world. Even the earth itself will be healed and ordinary life will become utterly divine and redeemed. He says, I will bring my people Israel back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted. From the land I have given them, says the Lord, your God. Condemnation, judgment, to hope, to promise, to redemption of all things. If you jump ahead into the New Testament, you read Acts, and the apostles have a meeting in Jerusalem in Acts 15. And what do they read? What do they read and refer to as they question what are the requirements for the Gentiles to come into the people of the God? They refer to Amos 8. And I'm sorry, to Amos 9. And they say that this time that was predicted in the prophet of Amos has come true in our time. This is the time of Jesus. This is what he is setting out to do. He comes not to bring judgment, but to bear judgment. He didn't come to inflict destruction upon people, but to bear destruction in his own body so that destruction would never again be felt ultimately by anyone. He came to guarantee the healing of the whole world. And his promise is not fully completed, but his promise is inaugurated in his life and death and resurrection. Charles Spurgeon has this great comment as he uh, preaches on the prodigal son parable. And he says this, The prodigal son was resolved to come, yet he was half afraid. But we read that his father ran. Slow are the steps of repentance, but swift are the feet of forgiveness. You see, slow were the steps of repentance in Israel, but swift was the forgiveness. If you would just repent a little, if you would just turn your heart to me a little, if you would just say, God, I am needy, I will forgive you fully. He says, God can run where we can scarcely limp. And if we are limping towards him, He will run towards us. Though the father was out of breath, he was not out of love. Friends, this is a very tough passage, but if you have just a little bit of repentance, if you have just a little bit of taste for grace and say, God, I am needy, 
I don't have anything else to offer you. I don't have anything that I can point to and say, God, I deserve you, except the fact that I'm needy of you. Except the fact that I need your forgiveness. I need your help. Would you come and build my repentance? Make it more. But take this little seed of repentance and increase my faith. There is a great life, a devoted life, an excellent life, a holy life that's expected of God's people. But it's never to earn his love. It's always to express it. To say, I have been redeemed. I have been made new. Measured by the plumb line, I'm an utter, complete failure. But measured by grace, I'm righteous. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Would you walk into that promise and that hope now as we conclude? Let's pray. Father, this is so tough for us to do. We want so badly to please you, to make you happy with our own works. We want people to applaud us for how good we've become. We want to claim for anything that we do that resembles a good work. Father, help us to exceed in good works yet without focusing upon them, without looking to them as our reason for hope. Let us look instead to you and the good work that you have done fully and finally in the cross of your Son. And Lord, as we approach the coming remembrance and recognition of his resurrection, give us eternal hope, an eternal reason for joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.